Free people will never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Praise Yahweh and pass the ammunition. The Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James. All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Pastor Eli James here, back in the saddle again after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Yeah, we're. Pastor Steve, I, and many others involved in your folk radio and the Christian identity movement have been celebrating Feast of Unleavened Bread and our heritage as the Israel people of the Bible. And a little bit of a hectic day. I finally arrived back in Chicago after a 10-day trip. A lot of stuff going on with uh, Christian identity, uh, a big conference in uh, Branson, Missouri, and uh, meetings with uh, Doc Waterman and others uh, around in uh, Mountain Home, Arkansas. Uh, we can talk about that uh, more tomorrow on Bloodlines and, and other shows, and possibly also on Fake News Now on Tuesday. But today I'm going to concentrate on the Balfour Declaration, the history of the Balfour Declaration, and the subterfuge of the Zionists in creating what's called the Israeli state. Uh, those of us in identity know that the Jewish people are in no way, shape, or form the Israel of the Bible. So their claim to Palestine is totally bogus. It's actually a repetition of history when Herod the Edomite used the power and military might of the Roman army to place himself as governor of Galilee and ultimately the the occupier, the occupier of Judah in the land called Judea, which by that time was a multicultural state in which the Judahites were no longer the power, no longer the force, the, the true force in Judea in the days of Herod was Rome, and Herod was their agent in enforcing the occupation. The In the modern era, the Jews, the Edomite Jews, have done exactly the same thing to Palestine, occupied it by force, but this time, instead of the Roman army, it was the British military, and the the aftermath of World War One and the Balfour Declaration that created the Jewish state. The current Jewish state is no more legitimate than the first Jewish state under Herod. The same group of people, the Jews pretending to be Israelites, claiming that land for themselves. It's just a repetition of history, a repetition of Edomite history, Jewish history. But uh, before we get into that, uh, there was a, a really excellent message from Mike Gallagher. I believe he is a radio talk show host 
and uh, uh, very conservative, but uh, I'm not sure whether he is a uh, a kosher conservative or not, but he has this excellent essay here. It's a satire called The Americans with No Abilities Act, the ANAA. Uh, it's a satire of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And all of these acts created by the Jews to uh, sick more taxes upon the white working middle class. So, uh, in other words, we have to support everybody with either real or imaginary disabilities. So, uh, but unfortunately, the kids graduating from schools these days, and especially college students graduating from college these days, are so ignorant, they might as well be called (laughs) disabled, intellectually disabled. And unfortunately, a lot of these people have already been occupying positions in government. Uh, Kim Fox, the uh, so-called state's attorney in uh, Illinois, is just one of these intellectually disabled people who uh, freed Juicy Smellett from... uh, from custody with no probable cause after a 16-count indictment against her. She just dropped the case. And we know, and, and we reported, we actually predicted that this might happen because we we here at Eurofolk Radio told you before anybody else did that Barack Obama was personally interested in, in this case and got involved at a very early stage because they did not want all the dirt to be dug up about, for number one, the fact that Kamala Harris had more than likely uh, plotted with a Juicy Smellett to stay, uh, contrive this event so that she could get her anti-lynching bill passed, right? So, and this is, this is politics today, folks. It's, just, it's ridiculous. It's a comedy. It's an absolute comedy. So thanks to a local uh, supporter of uh, Christian Identity for uh, providing us with this story. And again, it's called The Americans with No Abilities Act by Mike Gallagher. And I may just add some commentary as I read through this. Democratic senators are considering introducing legislation that will provide new benefits for many more Americans. The Americans with No Abilities Act is being hailed as a major legislative goal by advocates of the millions of Americans who lack any real skills and ambition. (laughs) Okay, well, I mean, that's all Democrats, right? Your entire Democratic Party, the vast majority of blacks, and uh, maybe not so many Mexicans, but you you have to give them a, a job and they'll do it. But if they can get paid for not working, they'll take that too. Quote, roughly 50% of Americans do not possess the competence and drive necessary to carve out a meaningful role for themselves in society. Unquote, said California Senator Kamala Harris. Continuing with her quotation, we can no longer stand by and allow people of inability, POI, 
to be ridiculed and passed over. With this legislation, employers will no longer be able to grant special favors to a small group of workers simply because they have some idea of what they are doing. Well, again, uh, liberals and Democrats, well, actually, they do know what they're doing. But they, uh, they want to employ people who don't know what they're doing because all they need is their votes. In a Capitol Hill press conference, Nancy Pelosi pointed out to the success of the U.S. Postal Service, which has a long-standing policy of providing opportunity without regard to performance. At the state government level, the Department of Motor Vehicles also has an excellent record of hiring persons with no ability, which is about 63% of the employees. Under the Americans with No Abilities Act, more than 25 million mid-level positions will be created with important-sounding titles, but little real responsibility, thus providing an illusory sense of purpose and performance. Well, this is all illusion, isn't it? Democracy is nothing but an illusion. Finally, the Americans with No Abilities Act contains tough new measures to make it more difficult to discriminate against the non-abled Banning, for example, discriminatory interview questions such as, quote, do you have any skills or experience that relate to this job, unquote. As a non-abled person, I can't be expected to keep up with people who have something going for them, said Mary Lou Gertz, who lost her position as a lug nut twister at the Toyota plant in Georgetown, Kentucky. By the way, I was there yesterday. Due to her inability to remember righty-tighty Lefty Lucy. That's a hard one. This new law should be really <laughs> loosey-goosey. <laughs> Sorry, folks. This new law should be real good for people like me. I'll finally have job security. With the passage of this bill, Gertz and millions of other untalented citizens will finally see a light at the end of the tunnel. Well, who has the government been employing lately anyhow, folks? Besides the unabled. Said Dick Durner, uh, Senator Dick too of Illinois, why is it always Illinois politicians that back all of this socialism and make work? Actually, make work is a bad term. Do nothing. Do nothing jobs. Quote, as a senator with no abilities, I believe the same privileges that elected officials enjoy ought to be extended to every American with no abilities. It is our duty as lawmakers to provide each and every American citizen, regardless of his or her inadequacy, with some sort of space to take up in this great nation and a good salary for doing so, unquote. There is, ladies and gentlemen, the Communist Manifesto made plain. And, of course, that, that kook from uh, New York City, Alexandria Kaufartz-Cortez, she believes in this bill, too. She may have actually co-sponsored this bill. Finally, a note here. Note, this message was approved by Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, Diane Feinstein, Feinstein rather, Kamala Harris, Maxine Waters, Cory Booker, Bernie Sanders, Chuck Schumer, Jeff Flake, Chris Van Holland, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, 
Elizabeth Warren and Nancy Pelosi, all of whom certainly are Americans with no abilities whatsoever. Well, actually, I think you underestimate them, Mr. Gallagher. They know exactly what they're doing. The, the whole welfare state is based on nothing but getting the votes of they're not really Americans. They're not really citizens. People, uh, position holders, placeholders. There you go. Placeholders, like uh, a drink holder, a coaster. Yeah, they're all coasting through life on the taxpayer's dime. This is what socialism is all about. This is what the welfare state is all about. And as long as this system continues... America will slide down into the gutter. There's no turning America around until the welfare state is eliminated. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. So, folks, if you think there's a political situation or solution, rather, to this problem, as long as non-working welfare recipients can vote, you know what they're going to vote for. They're going to vote for the Americans with No Abilities Act because they, they are that already. And they're not going to change. Outside of a revolution, n- nothing's going to change, folks. And I don't see Donald Trump changing the welfare state anytime soon. So, folks, America is in big, big trouble, and there is no political solution. The the only solution is the second coming of our Messiah. All right, but uh, well-written, well-written piece of satire by Mike Gallagher. This is what we're actually faced with, and it's not a joke, folks. It's not a joke. Uh, The middle-class white taxpayer is footing the bill for all of this nonsense. For all of this socialism, communism, and theft, graft, etc., etc. So anyway, glad to be back in the saddle again. Here at Eurofolk Radio, we've had, uh, uh, Steve and I and others have had uh, a necessary rest. A necessary rest. And we're going to dive in full throttle again tomorrow on Bloodlines and Voice of Christian Israel. And uh, for Fake News Now on Tuesday, we're anxious to make fun of the Jew World Order, the Jew World Order and all the fake news that it provides us on a daily basis. Uh, We'll probably be talking about the Julian Assange fiasco on Fake News Now on Tuesday and a whole bunch of other topics. Uh, We're really looking forward to uh, satirizing the Jew-controlled press, and telling you the truth about what's really going on as opposed to the comedy that is called the kosher press and mainstream news. Folks, it's an absolute joke, an absolute joke. But uh, for today, I'm going to be discussing the Balfour Declaration, and I'm going to be presenting the Jewish version of the, for, the for, it's called the forgotten truth about the Balfour Declaration, and it's always good to 
consider the enemy's perspective, how they how they present themselves, how the Jews present the unspe- unspeakable act of dispossession of an entire people in Palestine. And Palestine was occupied by, who are the Palestinian people? Maybe I should put it that way. Well, the Palestinian people before the Balfour Declaration, or at the time of World War I, consisted of three main groups of people, Palestinian Christians, Palestinian Arabs and Muslims, and some of those Arabs were also Christians and non-Muslims, and of course the Sephardic Jews. Uh, Many of these people of the three groups had been living together without any real conflict. Might have been minor strifes, throughout the history since the Jews were expelled by Titus, the Roman general Titus, in 70 AD, and uh, the, the subsequent expulsion in 165 AD. And that was really the final expulsion of the Jews, and where they went east and west, uh, many of them settled in Sicily, where they began the organized crime of the Sicilians. Many of them went back east to Babylon, and some of them went north into Europe, and many of them settled in Muslim countries later on. So the Jews were scattered after the the wars in Jerusalem between the Jews and the Romans. But many of them actually went to Rome and became advisors to the Roman Empire, So banking, bankers and advisors, and that's exactly how Herod got his start as as a Roman potentate or occupier, a Roman tax collector and enforcer. And, of course, he was not an Israelite by any stretch of the imagination. He was an Edomite. So the Judahite people of the land of Judea were forced to accept this interloper and this occupier called Herod and placed there by the power of the Roman army. A repeat of history occurred behind the scenes machinations of the Edomite Jews and, of course, the Ashkenazi Jews leading up to the Balfour Declaration in fact, uh, I, I can say very safely that World War I was orchestrated by the Jews. The, of course, the more powerful Jews, the, the Zionists and the banksters, the Rothschilds, especially the Rothschilds, in order to regain the territory that the Roman army had kicked them out of. So in a sense, the Jews can say, Well, yeah, Palestine was our home, but not because they were Israelites, but because they were occupiers under Herod, the Pharisees being the Edomite Jews empowered by Herod to take over political and religious and social control of Palestine in those days. And, of course, these were the people who executed Yahshua Messiah, not because he was their Messiah, but because he was not an Edomite. That's why they executed him. That's why they murdered him. 
And so here I'm going to read through this document to get the Jewish spin on what happened as a result and leading up to the Balfour Declaration. So again, this is from mosaicmagazine.com. Their, uh, their slogan here is Advancing Jewish Thought. And boy, there's way too much Jewish thought going on in the world today. Jewish conniving all over the place. We can't get away from it. Since the Jews own all the newspapers and the television networks, the Hollywood studios, and everything else in this world, the publishing companies, you cannot get away from Jewish thought. People don't realize it, but every living day, with the possible exception of the sports programming, every living day is nothing but Jewish thought. Even entertainment is nothing but Jewish thought. Can't get away with it. We're utterly immersed in Jewish propaganda from the moment we wake up to the moment we fall asleep and maybe even in our dreams it's nothing but Jewish propaganda so let's get into this let's see how the Jews spin the Balfour Declaration the title of the article is the forgotten truth about the Balfour Declaration for 100 years and this document was uh, promulgated in the year 1917, so that year was the 100th anniversary, and I guess this article was written with that in mind. Let me see what's the date here. Uh, okay. Apparently, June 2017 is the date of this article. And so, yes, this is on the anniversary, the anniversary, 100th anniversary year, centenary, of the Balfour Declaration. Now, of course, most people have never even heard of the Balfour Declaration. Only serious scholars, such as those of us in Christian identity, and you know, white nationalists who are serious scholars, and real historians who are serious scholars, know anything about the Balfour Declaration. The Balfour Declaration was the cause of the Jewish state. Without the Balfour Declaration, the Jewish occupation of Palestine would never have occurred. So this is a seminal document. Now, let me just say here, because many Judeo-Christians falsely believe that the Jewish state is a fulfillment of prophecy, especially the prophecy in Isaiah, which states that uh, who can believe it that uh, a nation is is created in a single day. Well, that's not Palestine. That's not the Jewish state because the the birth certificate was issued on in, in 1917, and it took another 31 years until 1948 when Harry Truman. Uh, fell all over himself to legitimize the Jewish state. So it was actually a process of 31 years to create the Jewish state. It was not born in a single day. That's America. Uh, As far as the Declaration of Independence is concerned and the events at Lexington and Concord, that was a year and a quarter. That was a much shorter time than 31 years. 
So there's only one nation that qualifies as being born in a single day in prophetic in prophetic years, and that is America. But let's get back to this. Again, the background to the Jewish state. The forgotten truth about the Balfour Declaration and a sub-introductory uh, statement here, introductory heading, for 100 years, the British statement, which inaugurated Zionism's legitimization in the eyes of the world, has been seen as the isolated act of a single nation. The truth is much different. Okay, I smell a rat. I smell propaganda already. What I smell coming is, okay, we have all of these nations that underwrote the Balfour Declaration or underwrote Zionism, underwrote the Jewish state. Well, that's not true. I, I can tell you right, right now that every signatory to the Paris Peace Conference and the League to Enforce Peace, later renamed the League of Nations, was a Jewish endeavor. First of all, all of the countries involved in World War I, the victors were, were signatories to the Paris Peace Conference and the League of Nations. Every one of those nations, and even Germany to the extent that Germany had a voice, which it really didn't, had a Jewish delegation or a Jew as a major advisor. So France, Britain, America, and every other nation involved in the Paris Peace Conference had either a Jewish delegation or a major Jewish representative advising those countries at the Paris Peace Conference. So you could see this is Jewish to the hilt, totally Jewish, 100% Jewish. And the signatory nations were there simply to rubber stamp the will of the Zionists with regard to Palestine and with regard to the punishment of Germany for the supposed guilt of World War One. Okay, so this was a Zionist endeavor from the get-go. So it shows, there's a picture here of British Lord Arthur Balfour in Jerusalem in 1925. Topical Press Agency, Holton Archive, Getty Images. And, of course, it was Arthur Balfour, who was the pro-Zionist Brit, who signed and accepted the Balfour Declaration on the behalf of the Rothschilds in 1917. And if I'm not mistaken, in this picture also is Woodrow Wilson's advisor, who was also a, a, a Rothschild operative, and Colonel House. Colonel House being a the, the, the Rothschild's advisor to Woodrow Wilson in our White House. Okay, he was he was Wilson's advisor for the entire eight years. Of course, he being the banker's advisor to Woodrow Wilson. And, of course, we know that Woodrow Wilson was being blackmailed by the international Jew 
in order to make these decisions because he had an affair with Mrs. Mary Peck, and they held this affair over his head as potential blackmail uh, over Woodrow Wilson's head, and this is how they forced Woodrow Wilson to do their bidding. Either that or he would have to fess up to the American people that he was a naughty boy and had an affair with a married woman while he was, of course, married to another woman. So this was a this was some nasty business that they had held over Woodrow Wilson's head. The art, this is an essay by Martin Kramer with a K, K-R-A-M-E-R. On November 2nd, 1917, a century ago, Arthur James Balfour, the British Foreign Secretary, conveyed the following pledge in a public letter to a prominent British Zionist, Lord Walter Rothschild. Okay, so this letter was given to Mr. Rothschild. Not sure, excuse me, not sure if Walter Rothschild was the head of the Bank of England at this time. Maybe we'll find out. Quote, His Majesty's Government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. But we know for a fact that the rights of the non-Jewish people in Palestine have been totally ignored. So this aspect, this clause of the Balfour Declaration has been utterly violated by the Zionists from the day that they made this false promise. Let's continue. At the time, as World War I raged, British and Australian forces were fighting deep in in Palestinian territory against the Ottomans and were poised to take Jerusalem. The Balfour Declaration, for all its vagaries, constituted the first step toward the objective of political Zionism as outlined by the First Zionist Congress at its meeting in Basel, Switzerland in 1897. And it's also, we here at Eurofolk Radio Aver, that's where the protocols also were created. Quote, Zionism seeks to establish a home for the Jewish people in, the, in Palestine, secured under public law, unquote. Okay, now what kind of public law would there be that would legitimately take a country from the people to whom it rightfully belongs and give it to somebody else. What kind of public law is this? Well, there was no public law except for this promise by Lord Balfour to, was was this Jew also a Lord? <laughs> Lord Walter Rothschild. Yes, a Lord. Lord Walter Rothschild. Okay, so a couple of Lords getting together. So this was nothing but legal sleight of hand. This is a power play, folks. That's all this is. There's no legal right. The Zionists have no legal right to Palestine. The British have no legal right to give it to the Jews. 
and the Zionists have nothing but money and power at their disposal, and that's what legitimized the Balfour Declaration. Nothing, it had nothing to do with law. There was no law, and there still is no law, to rightfully give Palestine to the Jewish people. Of course, they claim on the basis that they are the Israel of the Bible that they have a right to Palestine, but they never were. And But they do have, as I said earlier, a claim to the fact that they were, the Jews did, live in Palestine for a hundred and oh, almost 200 years uh, around the, the days of uh, Jesus Christ. The Jews did live, the Edomite Jews did live there, but as an occupying force, not as the people of the Bible, certainly not, uh, not the people of Israel. So let's continue. Uh, Zionism, again, Zionism seeks to establish a home for the Jewish people in Palestine secured under public law, whatever that means. In other words, they have to create the law. (laughs) Somehow a law has to be created for this to be legitimized, to be rubber stamped. Theodore Herzl had failed to land such commitment either from the Ottoman Sultan or from any of Europe's, of Europe's potentates. Okay, in other words, the nations of Europe, the, uh, the Ottoman Sultan and the nations of Europe had failed to give the Jews what they wanted. So the Jews had to connive to get it. The article continues. I'm reading between the lines here. The declaration was the much-awaited opening, colon, narrow, conditional, hedged, but an opening all the same. Okay, so the Jewish brush salesman knocks on your door, or knocks on the door of every country in Europe, and nobody lets them in. Okay, nobody lets them in. But the country in which the Bank of England resides, he knocks on that door. Uh, The door comes ajar and he sticks his foot in there and he will not allow the door to be closed. And this foot is called the Balfour Declaration. Let's continue. Quote, there is a British proverb about the camel and the tent, said the British Zionist leader, Kayam Weitzman, later that November. At first, the camel sticks one leg in the tent, and eventually it slips into and eventually slips into it. This must be our policy, unquote. And so it became. Well, I just used the the brush salesman <laughs> anecdote. He uses the camel anecdote. Section one: the debate over the declaration's meaning. Since the Balfour Declaration constitutes the beginning of Israel's legitimization by other nations. Uh, no, that's a stretch. Pressuring politicians to make a decision that they don't want to make is not legitimation. legitimization. Continuing, the Declaration's own legitimacy has been the subject of unending attacks, and rightfully so. 
This is made easier with each passing year as the world that produced the declaration draws ever more remote. Well, no, it's made easier by real historical research because this was nothing but Zionist conniving from the get-go. Few people today are sure why World War I was fought at all. That is correct. And Britain, circa 1917, is best known through PBS costume dramas along the lines of Downton Abbey. Then that's also correct. I mean, Jews do make true statements. As as uh, un germane uh, as they are, <laughs> these are true statements, right? Few people know why World War I was fought. That's a true statement. And most people know more about Downton Abbey than they know about World War I. Question, the Balfour Declaration? In the mind's eye, one imagines back and forth negotiations in the palaces of Whitehall and the gilded drawing rooms of the Rothschild dynasty. Yes, yes, yes. A smoke-filled room. Cigar-chomping Jews. And banksters, yeah, I can picture that. With white-gloved servants delivering urgent seals missives. Surely, the declaration was stirred by similarly antique passions and interests, from safeguarding England's route to India to satisfying the Christian restorationist imperative of returning the Jews to the Holy Land. Now, wait a minute. The Christian Restorationist Imperative. There was hardly any interest among Christians in those days to return or to put, that's more correct, to put Jews in Palestine. This whole endeavor was bankrolled by Jewish banksters, especially the Rothschilds, They hired so-called Christians to argue for the Jewish presence in Palestine. So to the extent that there was a Christian restorationist movement, it was run by Jews, not by Christians. The Christians of the world could have cared less whether Jews went to Palestine or not. And certainly the Palestinian Christians did not care for this idea whatsoever, continuing. So here you can see how a a Jewish author legitimizes a term such as Christian restorationist as if it was actually Christian. No, it's not. Continuing. The content of the Declaration seems no less distant or downright baffling. Yes, baffling. How did the Jews, the Zionists, manage to secure the promise of a third party, namely Britain, to take away the property of the second party, namely the Palestinians? The party of the first part are the Jews who wanted that territory. 
The second part is the Palestinians who owned it. And the third party is the British whose army was required to take it from the Palestinians. The prominent Jewish intellectual Arthur Kestler, repeating a frequent mantra, would call it, quote, one of the most improbable political documents of all time, unquote, in which one nation solemnly promised to a second nation the country of a third. Wow, I, I almost quoted Arthur Kessler verbatim, <laughs> right? So Arthur Kessler said, yeah, there's three parties, and the one party's rights are utterly ignored. Let me repeat this because Arthur Kessler was telling the truth here. Whether he was pro-Zionist uh, or not is another matter, but he describes the situation correctly in which, quote, one nation solemnly promised to a second nation the country of a third. The fact that it included no explicit rationale for itself has also fueled the suspicion that its authors had dark or disreputable motives. Yeah, well, it's just a statement. We, the British representatives, promised to the Jewish people the territory of a third people. That's it. That's all. This, uh, there's no legitimization whatsoever. No treaties, no previous treaties cited whereby they might push this through. Nothing. It's just a blatant statement that here we're gonna we're gonna give you the land of another people uh, because you asked for it. The fact that it included no explicit rationale for itself has also fueled the suspicion that its authors had dark or disreputable motives. Absolutely. So I'm wondering here, I'm kind of scratching my head, what possible rationale could a Jew give for this? After all, it was issued in the name of the largest empire in history, embracing or perhaps gripping almost a quarter of the world's landmass and population. Yeah, an imperialistic country. So, the Zionist imperialists leaned on the British imperialists to take away the property of a pipsqueak country. That's the long and the short of it, folks. There's no more legitimization than that. In the guilt-sodden litany of imperialism at its apogee, or its height, the Balfour Declaration has enjoyed a certain preeminence as, in the words of the British Arabist Elizabeth Monroe, quote, one of the greatest mistakes in our imperial history, unquote. Boy, do I agree with that. So this article is obviously, it begins as if it were a objective and objective statement, you know, quoting people who disagreed with it. So I'm, I'm wondering what possible rationale justification can this Jewish author come up with to make the, the Balfour Declaration legitimate? Continuing, the whiff of old-style imperialism also explains why some Israelis, or rather Jews, and supporters of, 
let's call it Judea, because that's what it really is. It, it is the reinstitution of Judea as ruled by Edomites. Today, it's still Judea as ruled by Edomites and Ashkenazi Khazars. In other words, the same, the same type of people who had no legitimate right to it 2,000 years ago. Some have tried to shift the focus to the League of Nations mandate for Palestine, conferred on Britain in 1922, which not only incorporated the declaration, but helpfully added the rationale, namely, that it was the historical connection of the Jewish people with Palestine that formed grounds for reconstituting their national home in that country. Now, the historical connection of the Jewish people with Palestine is only that. They forcibly occupied that territory with the Roman army. The historical connection is not that they are Israel. Continuing, 60 years ago, the American lawyer Saul Linowitz insisted that by itself the declaration was, quote, legally impotent, for Great Britain had no sovereign rights over Palestine. That is correct. Thank you very much, Mr. Linowitz. It had no proprietary interest. It had no authority to dispose of the land, unquote. I mean, you can't say it any better than that. That's absolutely correct. It was only in the League of Nations mandate that the, quote, victorious allies in solemn proclamation recognized the prior Jewish rights to Palestine, unquote, and did so in a formal international document of unquestionable legal validity. Now that I deny. It had no legal validity whatsoever. Just because a bunch of big shots, most of them bribed by Jewish money, got together and made a formal proclamation of theft does not give it unquestionable legal validity. It's amazing how a Jewish author can make such a leap. But that's what they do. Let me restate this. And this is a, the leap. that the, Talk about a leap of faith. Uh, or maybe I should call it a leap of chutzpah. First, this Saul Linowitz says that the declaration itself was legally impotent, for Great Britain had no sovereign rights over Palestine. It had no proprietary interest. It had no authority to dispose of the land. And then he says... They issued a formal international document of unquestionable legal validity. <laughs> how, does, how does the one become the other? Without subterfuge. The article continues. Another approach to downplaying the Balfour Declaration has been to skip straight to the 1947 UN General Assembly resolution endorsing the partition of Palestine into two states. As an example is a recent article by Galia Golan, a distinguished Hebrew University professor, headlined, quote, Balfour just isn't that big a deal, unquote. All right, so here you can see the mock journalism that we are experiencing here. 
the this Jewish author is quoting other Jewish authors, both pro and con, in order to convey the impression that well, we, we Jews, we're objective. You see, we we we're of all opinions, and we come together. Uh, you know, we agree upon this and agree upon that, or disagree upon this, disagree upon that, and then we we come to a conclusion. We're so objective. We're fair, objective, and reasonable and rational. No, they're not. They don't tell you about the behind-the-scenes skullduggery, the string-pulling by the Rothschilds to pull all this off, and not to mention the, the hundreds and thousands of people who have been brutally murdered and dispossessed in the process. All based on this bogus claim that they are the Israel of the Bible. So he's quoted Galia Golan, he's quoted Arthur Kessler, he's quoted Saul Linowitz. I doubt that he would uh, quote a real serious critic of the Balfour Declaration, a non-Jewish one. He continues, of course, the United Nations is another Rothschild creation. The League of Nations was a Rothschild creation, and the United Nations, another Rothschild creation. So, and Zionism is a Rothschild creation, and Palestine is a Rothschild. So, in other words, you have a bunch of Jews getting together, rubber stamping each other's opinions. Let's continue. It is interesting, then, that the late Abba Iban, even though he played a major role in securing the 1947 resolution, thought otherwise. The events of 1947 and 1948, he wrote, seemed to overshadow the Balfour, Balfour, Balfour Declaration. Yeah, Balfour, <laughs> take a walk. Seemed to overshadow the Balfour Declaration. Well, it's a meaningless statement. No, they finalized the Balfour Declaration. The Balfour Declaration was written in order to... And in this result, they always resort to bogus language in order to legitimize what they're doing. But this is no legitimization. It's it's chutzpah. It's pure chutzpah. That's all it is. So he said the... The 1947 resolution seemed to overshadow the Balfour Declaration, which it did not, and to have more revolutionary consequences, which it did. (laughs) Okay, yeah. It gave that territory away to the Jews, which, which was the stated intention of the Balfour Declaration. The article continues, but in fact, by 1947, the Zionists could not be stopped, that's for sure. The Yishuv was, quote, too large to be dominated by Arabs, too self-reliant to be confined by tutelage, and too ferociously resistant to be thwarted in its main ambition, unquote, which, of course, was statehood. Yeah, and how was all this accomplished? By skullduggery and force, which, of course, this Jewish author will never mention. In 1917, by contrast, proposing the recognition of the right of the Jews to a national home in Palestine, quote, was to rebel against the inertia of established facts. That's correct, because nobody wanted to do it. No no non-Jewish nation wanted to rubber stamp the Balfour Declaration, but Britain did. 
or wanted to agree to the idea that the Jews had a right to take the territory of the Palestinian people away from them, and against, quote, mountainous obstacles of rationality, (laughs) unquote. Yeah, where's the rhyme or reason? Your bogus claim to being Israel, and you're resorting to blatant force. That's not rationality. So you start with a lie and and put it into effect using force. That's certainly not rationality. In Eban's view, the Balfour Declaration thus stands alone as, quote, the decisive diplomatic victory of the Jewish people in modern history, unquote. And that is correct. But it may actually be the hoaxacost. <laughs> the hoaxacost may be even more decisive because they use the hoaxacost to rubber stamp all other Jewish grabs of power. And so, indeed, it has largely been taken. Yeah, the Balfour Declaration, which virtually no non-Jew even knows about. The Declaration has come to be remembered as either the moment of conception for Israel. Okay, so if it was conceived in 1917 and not ratified until 1948, that's not a single day, folks. That's 31 years. And what the pro-Zionist parliamentarian Richard Crossman called, quote, one of the greatest acts of Western statesmanship in the 20th century, unquote. No, it was one of the greatest acts of camouflage, subterfuge, sabotage, treachery, treachery, and more treachery that the world has ever known. Pure treachery. That's what it was, folks. So they refer to treachery as statesmanship. Or it's the original sin against the Palestinian Arabs and what the Palestinian scholar activist Valid Khalidi recently called, quote, the single most destructive political document on the Middle East in the 20th century, unquote. And that is absolutely correct. The author continues, in this sense, the Declaration Centennial is truly a big deal. Nevertheless, it was totally overlooked by the mainstream media. According to various announcements, come November, it will be celebrated by Israel, or Judea, and you can spell Judea, J-E-W-D-U-E-A, Judea, protester, J-U-W-D-E-A, Judea, protested by the Palestinians and marked by Britain. Yeah, Britain is the, is the cuck, the cuck power to give it legitimacy. Few of the celebrants or the protesters, however, will have much understanding of what produced the Balfour Declaration, which should not be surprising. Even historians cannot agree, which assures that almost no one who hasn't studied the history of it is likely to have a clue. So please enlighten us. Please enlighten us, Mr. Kramer, Mr. Martin Kramer. Uh, I have a feeling we're not going to be very much enlightened. I think it's just going to be more double talk. Part two. Kayam Weitzman's Forgotten Partners. Okay, and Kayam Weitzman is one of the world's leading Zionists at the time. 
along with Theodore Herzl, and of course the Rothschild family. They were the top dog Zionists of them all. They're the ones with all the money. The author continues, the various views of Britain's motives need only be summarized here. All right, uh, okay, well, summarize, I mean, if you want a detailed explanation, the summary is not going to do, but let's continue. In 1916 and 1917, the Allied powers, Britain, France, Belgium, Russia, Italy, and later the United States, were locked in a devastating war with the Central Powers, Germany, Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, and the Ottoman Empire. And fearful that they might be fought to a draw. Hmm. No, actually, according to Benjamin Friedman, Germany had literally won the war. And uh, Russia had backed out. France had backed out. I don't know about Belgium or Italy. The United States had not even been involved yet. And Britain was weak and not able to carry on without assistance from America. And this is what the Jews were willing and able to provide. So according to Benjamin Friedman, the Germans had literally won the war and were simply waiting for Britain to capitulate because France and Russia and other states had already capitulated. And not a single shot had been fired on German soil. So you can hardly consider Germany to be the loser. But the Zionists could not let this opportunity to claim uh, take Palestine away from the Ottoman Empire and subsequently from the Arabs. They could not let this opportunity slip. So they had to do something. Continuing. Hence, the most documented explanation for the declaration is that the British government hoped to persuade Jews into two wavering allied countries, the United States and Russia, to insist that their government stay in the war until total victory. Well, Russia was not capable of doing this because it had collapsed. Russia had been engaged in war after war after war. The Russian troops had actually thrown down their weapons and went home during World War I. And uh, Russia was no longer a factor. So the only only possibility was for global Jewry to involve America in this war. Let's continue. Jewish influence, the British thought, would tilt the debate in Washington and St. Petersburg and could best be activated by the promise of a Jewish restoration to Palestine. No, this was, this was not British thought. This is Jewish thought imposed upon the British. So here's the spin, folks. Here's this Jewish author saying, oh, it was Britain's idea to involve the Zionists. Oh, yeah. That's believable. Continuing. This was married to a misplaced fear that Germany might steal a march on the Allies by issuing its own pro-Zionist declaration. Ooh, that I was not aware of. If that's true, that's very interesting. But Germany had rejected that idea before World War One. 
if Germany had reconsidered at this point, it could only be because the German government had got wind that the Zionists were pushing Britain into involving America. That could be the only reason, because Germany, the Kaiser, had rebuffed Jewish attempts to claim Palestine, and so had the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. So as the article began, all Jewish endeavors to claim Palestine, to take Palestine from the Arabs, had been rebuffed by every nation in Europe, the only nations that counted, and the Ottoman Empire, all had re- all had refused. So the Zionists had to do something. Let's continue. To us today, this seems like a vast exaggeration of the power of the Jews at the time. No, it doesn't. Does it? Only the Jews had any reason to claim Palestine. Why should the British, the Germans, the Ottomans, or any other country even consider it? It was not in the interest of any of those nations for this to happen. It was only in Jewish interest for this to happen. You see, Jewish spin on everything, even though they're stating that it's Jewish power, that is Zionist power that motivated all of this, they still deny it in the next sentence. It is not a vast exaggeration. It is the fact. Let's continue. But British policymakers believed in what the British Zionist Harry Sacher once called, quote, the great Jewish legend, unquote. Okay, well, what delu- What other delusions are the British people under, which was, of course, placed in their minds by the Jews themselves? Quoting Harry Sacker, that legend finds its crudest and its stupidest expression in the protocols of the elders of Zion. But many even of those who reject the forgery and the lie have a residual belief in the power and the unity of Jewry. Okay, so let's pretend that the protocols of the elders of Zion don't exist. We find that at the Paris Peace Conference, the Zionists had their own delegation, even though there was no Jewish state. So how does a non-existent state get its own delegation at the Peace Conference? And that every other state had Jewish advisors. You're telling me that the Jews don't have power? This is chutzpah, folks. It's Jewish spin. So let me repeat this last sentence. That legend finds its crudest and its stupidest expression in the protocols of the elders of Zion, but many even of those who reject the forgery and a lie have a residual belief in the power and the unity of Jewry. Well, man, you know, bankers have lots of money and therefore have lots of power. So, speaking in generalities, these Jews try to pretend that they don't have any power. Yet they brag about having the ear of the sultan, the ear of the president, the ear of the king, queen, etc. 
Then he says, we suffer for it. Okay, what? We suffer for having these rumors about us? That we have too much power? But it is not holy without its compensations. What, the rumors or the fact that you have too much power? You can see the subtlety of this Jewish writer. Both of them. All of them. Just the, the same kind of subtlety that whispered in Eve's ear 6,000 years ago. Because it's the same entity, folks. This is the synagogue of Satan being clever, knowing full well that mostly only Jews are going to read this garbage and that the critics who read it are actually powerless to do anything about it. So they're laughing. These Jewish authors are laughing as they're writing these connivances. It is one of the imponderabilia of politics, and it plays, consciously or unconsciously, its part in the calculations and the decisions of statesmen. Yes, statesmen influenced by Jewish money. Of course, they leave the power of Jewish money out of this equation entirely, and they have to. Otherwise, this BS wouldn't fly at all. The the author continues, The second explanation is that the British rushed to embrace Zionism as a means of justifying their own claim to Palestine in the anticipated post-war carve-up of the Middle East. Well, I think the British were motivated by oil and other commodities, of which Palestine has none. So, Okay, I mean, if you're going to make a statement like this, why don't you at least give an example? What what were the British claims to Palestine? What were they? Come on, man, you're making a statement that they have, independent of Jewish pressure to take Palestine, what are they? Of course, Jews never provide such important details. The British, as patrons of the Jews, yes, patrons of the Jews, could exclude their French ally from Palestine while claiming to champion the self-determination of a small people. Well, the fact is, the British had what was called the McMacken Treaty. And the McMacken Treaty was with the Palestinian Arabs, in which they promised that at the conclusion of World War I, they would return Palestine to the Arabs. But of course, this Jewish author does not mention that. So, self-determination, yeah. Well, yeah, uh, the British could not do both. They could not be patrons of the Jews and claim and give self-determination to the Arabs. So this is what this guy is saying. That that is correct. The British could not do both. Let me read this sentence again. He's doing it in a subtle and distorted way, but that's what he's saying. The British, as patrons of the Jews, could exclude their French ally from Palestine while claiming championing 
the self-determination of a small people. Okay, so he's marginalizing the Palestinians by referring to them as a small people. Well, what were the Jews in Palestine in these days, if not a small people? Small, but very rich. Very powerful and influential. Something the Palestinians could not claim. While this explanation differs from the first, it shares with it a straightforward assumption. Needing Zionism for their own ends, the British required very little prodding to produce the Balfour Declaration. There you go. Thank you very much. Whatever the motivations of the British, the Balfour Declaration helped them. But the real motivation of the Balfour Declaration was Jewish. Whatever the outcome of World War I, without Jewish, intervention, without Jewish intervention, the British were more likely to maintain their political agreements with other countries, including Palestine. But with the Jews demanding Palestine, what were the British going to do? Next paragraph. But in the collective memory of Zionists and Judeans, there is another factor, the persuasive genius of one man, the persuasive cunning of one man, Kayyem Weitzman. That telling goes like this. Weitzman, famed biochemist and later head of the English Zionist Federation, managed single-handedly to win over Britain's leading politicians and opinion makers to the Zionist idea. How did he do this? Single-handedly, you say? Not without Rothschild prompting? Why was the uh, Balfour Declaration addressed to Lord Rothschild and not to Weitzman? The Weitzman saga unfolds behind the scenes. Oh, thank you very much. That I could have told you. In London drawing rooms. Well, he denied this possibility earlier. He says this conjures up dreams of smoke-filled rooms, right? Well, here's your smoke-filled room behind the scenes. See, when you read these Jewish writings carefully enough, you will find that they will contradict each other and themselves. The Weitzman saga unfolds behind the scenes in London drawing rooms, in those smoke-filled rooms with cigar-chomping Jews with big bucks sticking out of their pockets. Where this Russian Jewish immigrant, not even a British subject, having arrived in England in only 1904, was he even a British citizen at this point? succeeds in persuading, some might say seducing, yes, I would say seducing, bribing, intimidating, the likes of Balfour, Mark Sykes, Alfred Milner, oh, the the roundtable group, oh boy, we're talking about heavy-duty secret society people here, and David Lloyd George, who would soon hold the fate of the Middle East in their hands. Yes, the roundtable group, folks. 
one of the biggest, most powerful secret societies. Of course, he doesn't mention their name, the Roundtable Group. Just another secret society controlled by the Rothschilds. And these people would soon hold the fate of the Middle East in their hands. Yeah, Rothschild pawns. The Balfour Declaration is the triumph of one man's indefatigable will and his personal effect upon a handful of British statements. No, it's it's the will of a well-paid Rothschild agent. There's not Kayam Weitzman would do nothing without Rothschild's instructions. Zev Jabotinsky, as early as January 1918, cast Weitzman in this heroic role. Oh, he's a hero! Not a brutal invader, not a brutal occupier. Quote, the declaration is the personal achievement of one man alone, Dr. Kayam Weitzman, Four years of patient and calculated work behind the scenes, as the author just admitted, behind the scenes, established the link between us and each one of the statesmen in this country. Apparently the above-mentioned statesmen of England. The important people of England speak openly of his personal charm, charm not money come on folks are you buying this personal charm well it's the same charm that Nahash had in the garden isn't it as one of the most effective factors in Zionist propaganda in England well for sure Zionist propaganda as we take the word propaganda Americans take the word propaganda to mean lies in Europe, the word propaganda means more like information, you know, the public relations. But over here, we know it's lies. The endorsement of Zionism by most of Rothschilds in London is also due to his influence. I don't think so, folks. I think it's the other way around. In our history, the declaration will remain linked to the name of Weizmann and, of course, Rothschild. Now, that's very interesting that this article stresses the name of Weitzman, and uh, most people who think of the Balfour Declaration will immediately think of Lord Rothschild because that's who it's addressed to. There's no way that Kayam Weitzman is going to do something that Rothschild hasn't approved because he's the guy with the money. Continuing, in the decades that followed the Balfour Declaration, Weitzman would go on to a famed career as a leader, spokesman, and diplomat of Zionism, culminating in his election as Israel's or Judea's first president. Now, all of this information, I don't know, famed, a famed career? Most people listening to this program never heard of this guy. So where is the fame? It's Fame is only in Jewish circles, in Rothschild circles, in Zionist circles. The public, uh, most people have never even heard of this guy. Most people have, haven't even heard of the Rothschilds. In 1949, he published his autobiography, Trial and Error, translated over the next two years into Hebrew, German, Dutch, Swedish, Norwegian, Spanish, Italian, and a few years later, French. 
This work firmly cemented his place in the Zionist pantheon. Good choice of words there. <laughs> the pagan pantheon as the man who brought forth the declaration. Well, maybe he's the guy, maybe he was the bag man who delivered it to Balfour. But he certainly wasn't the inspiration of it. He died in 1952, when in 1967, Judea celebrated the 50th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration. It issued two stamps, one depicting Balfour, the other Weitzman. Interesting how Lord Rothschild was left out. Wouldn't Lord Rothschild feel slighted about that? No, he prefers to remain behind the scenes. Continuing, true, when one consults the website of Yad Weizmann, the institute that houses his archives, one discovers that Weizmann was not alone. Quote, there were additional partners in this success. Well, I told you so, folks. Now, he, he just goes on lionizing Kayim Weizmann as the main mainspring of the, the Zionist movement of the Balfour Declaration, now we find out, oh, there's other people involved too. Still, quote, the achievement is generally identified with Kayim Weitzman, who quickly became the prominent Zionist leader of his generation. Yeah. And the public is clueless about all of this. Who were these, quote, additional partners? Yeah, Will you tell us? I don't think so. <laughs> Let's find out. Their contribution has been largely forgotten. But when the fuller story is told, I mean, it's like we're really getting the full story here, folks. Yeah, this is detailed Jewish explanation. It's nothing but spin. But when the fuller story is told the Balfour Declaration looks very different. It is no longer a British imperial grab, but the outcome of a carefully constructed consensus of the leading democracies of the day. Well, that's very interesting. He already told us that none of the leading countries of Europe would sign on to the project. So how were they persuaded to sign on to the project. He doesn't just talk about this at all. Come on, man. How? Why did they change their minds? How were their minds changed? I guess it just happened. Like all the Jews being kicked out of 100 countries in Europe. It just happened. No reason for it. This, folks, is the quality of of Jewish essay, <laughs> the art of the Jewish essay, to make bold statements that contradict each other and leave out the most pertinent facts. This is how Jews write. It wasn't a British imperial grab in the first place. It was a Zionist imperial grab. He continues, it is no longer in tension with the Tension, T-E-N-S-I-O-N, with the principle of self-determination. What does that mean? In conflict with? But a statement made possible by the very champion of the principle. Yeah, we want, we want Palestine. We're going to take it. That's the principle. 
And it is no longer an emanation of secret dealings, but one of the first instances of public No, it wasn't public. The hell it was public. Publicly, it was rejected by all of the European nation states. He just admitted it. And then he says there was behind-the-scenes dealings. <laughs> it's not public statement. It's not public diplomacy by any means. He's just making a contrary assertion. He's, contra- he's contradicting his own words. It is, in short, not a throwback to the 19th century, but an opening to the 20th. Oh, yeah, give me a stinking break. The 19th century is nothing but Jewish conspiracy, too. The key to understanding the fuller story is this. In regard to Palestine, Britain could not have acted alone because it belonged to an alliance. But he already admitted that none of these other countries had any designs on Palestine. And as I told you, Britain had a treaty with Palestine to give it back to the Arabs. How were they? How was Britain's mind changed? Please explain. The Allied powers, especially Britain and France, but also Russia, Italy, and later America, were fighting together. Yes, they were. But why was America drawn in? How was America drawn in? Nobody knows. Nobody outside of Christian identity understands how America was brought into World War I by the Jews. Their policies had to be coordinated. Yeah, and who did the coordinating? It would have been unthinkable for Britain to have issued a public pledge regarding the future territory yet to be taken in war without the prior assent of its wartime allies, especially those that also had an interest in Palestine. Who had an interest in Palestine? Nobody. Except the Jews. This fact is entirely obscured by the Balfour Declaration's form. No, it's, it's revealed by the Balfour Declaration's form that it was simply a promise weaseled out of the British government to promise something they couldn't promise. Arm twisting, bribery, threats, intimidation, and probably a few assassinations along the way. That's how the Balfour Declaration was put into place. The letter was written on behalf of His Majesty's government and no other. Okay, so what? (laughs) But, no, it it was written on behalf of Lord Rothschild as well. The declaration was approved by the British cabinet and no other. Yeah, I mean, none of the other. He just admitted that no other nation would sign on. And he just admitted that there had, was a lot of behind the scenes string pulling. And then he says it's a public document. This guy is so self-contradictory, it's funny. On the face of it, the declaration was a unilateral British letter of intent. Yes, exactly. That's what it was. Cajoled by the Rothschilds. In truth, in expressing a broad consensus of the Allies, it does not express a broad consensus of the Allies. In no way, shape, or form does it do that. He's making this stuff up. 
It might even be seen as roughly comparable to a UN Security Council resolution today. Yeah, these are also Jewish pronunciations. That's all they are. So the, the, the statement itself, as he correctly states, has no multilateral connotation or intent. It's simply, as he says, unilateral British intent for the Zionists, on behalf of the Zionists. But then he says, oh, 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 it's just like a UN resolution. No, it isn't. He continues to prevaricate. To appreciate this, it is necessary to shift the focus away from London to Paris, Rome and Washington, and away from Chaim Weizmann to a Zionist leader now barely remembered. Nahum Sokolow. Okay, so let's uh, let's get the other guy, the other Rothschild agent. <laughs> Enter Nahum Sokolow. Nahum Sokolow. Most is most Judeans know a Sokolow Street. Several other older Israeli cities have one. Few can locate Beit Sokolow, the headquarters of the Israeli Journalists Association in Tel Aviv or know of the Biennial Sokolow Prize, a journalism award, kind of like the Pulitzer Prize. Pulitzer was also a Jew. Scarcely anyone is aware of that said Nahum, a small kibbutz, kibbutz rather, in the Beit Shean Valley is named after him. I guess they really want to keep this guy's memory a secret. Or did up to now, well, this is, after all, the 100th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration. But as this short list suggests, Sokolow has been almost entirely forgotten. Unlike Weitzman, no institute or memorial bears his name, no currency or stamp bears his image. He is buried on Mount Herzl, where he was reinterred in 1956, two decades after his death. So why was he reinterred? They dug him up and re and reburied him. Interesting tidbit. When, even then, an Israeli newspaper reported that quote those born in Judea and the new immigrants who encountered the funeral processions asked, "Who is this Nahum Sokolow?" Today, more than eighty years after his death, only a few historians remember Sokolow, and none has troubled to produce a scholarly biography. Okay, all right, well, okay, since this guy is such a nobody, let's find out why. Who then was he? Nahum Sokolow was born sometime between 1859 and 1861 in central Poland and received a traditional rabbinic schooling. So here we have a Polish Jew and a Russian Jew, clearly not Brits, as the behind-the-scenes, and of course Herzl, uh, I don't know where Herzl was from, he was probably also a Russian, involving themselves in British politics. If you don't recognize the internationalist stamp of the international Jew and the international communist in this narrative, then you don't recognize anything. It says, okay, he had received traditional rabbinic schooling, whatever that means. But he taught himself secular subjects 
and soon gained renown as a prodigy, a polyglot, that means he dabbles in everything, and a prolific writer on a vast array of subjects. In 1880, he moved to Warsaw and later assumed the editorship of the Hebrew journal Hatsefera, which became a daily in 1886. There he contributed a popular column and wrote much of the rest of the paper, so that his fame spread with the spread of modern Hebrew. Well, of course, among the Jews. When they say fame, they mean among the Jews only, because as he just admitted, nobody's ever heard of this guy. (laughs) And even most Jews haven't heard of this guy. Here's another contradiction. If he had such great fame, why hasn't anybody heard of him, even the Jews? He was soon acknowledged as the world's most prominent Hebrew language journalists. Okay, and so everybody promptly forgot that he was famous. This is so silly. In 1897, Sokolo reported from the first Zionist Congress and fell under the spell of Herzl. Oh, yeah, no, they were. he wasn't just another Jew conniver. It was he who translated Herzl's utopian novel, Alt Neuland, which is actually a non sequitur in German, Old Newland. That's what that means. Alt Neuland means Old Newland. Into Hebrew, yeah, it's, just, it's a Jew joke. And who gave it the Hebrew title Tel Aviv, which a few years later became the name of a new Jewish city. Leaving daily journalism in 1906, he became the Secretary General of the World Zionist Organization. Okay, a nobody, a complete nobody. Secretary General of the World Zionist Organization, which was struggling after the death of Herzl two years later. Sokolow thereupon threw himself into lobbying, diplomacy, and propaganda, as we know it in the American sense of the word, lies, traveling across Europe, America, and the Ottoman Empire. So, He was a prime mover and shaker for the Rothschild, no doubt about it. In 1911, he was elected to the Zionist executive. This guy was a big shot. It's amazing that nobody's ever heard of him, not even Jews. In 1914, following the outbreak of war, he relocated to Britain, where he joined forces with the dynamic young Kayam Weitzman in the campaign to win British recognition for Zionist aims. So he's a Jewish hero, but totally forgotten. Sokolow is the entry point into the fuller story of the Balfour Declaration, at least as much as the Jews will allow us to know. Indeed, at the time of the Declaration, many Jews around the world gave him more credit for it than they gave to Weizmann. This was partly because Sokolow, the Hebrew journalist, was better known than Weizmann, the biochemist. As Herzl's contemporary, he was also senior to Weizmann in age and in his standing in world Zionism. So this guy was a big shot. I'd like to know the real reason why Sokolow was forgotten. What did he do? He must have done something bad. But Sokolow was also given credit because he accomplished what many thought impossible. During the spring of 1917, he secured the explicit or tacit assent of the French and Italian governments and even of the Catholic Pope to a Jewish national home under British auspices. Okay, so it's this guy Sokolow, who was moving and shaking among these other nations, who for no reason at all suddenly signed on to Zionism. 
So now he's giving uh, the guy who moved, went to all these other countries and secured their consent to the so-called Jewish national home. Sokolow is his name. Under British auspices. How did he surprise everyone, including Weitzman, by this achievement? Why? Because he went to all these countries and bribed them. This is what he did. No, he's a statesman. He's not a snake. He's a statesman. Why has it been forgotten? And how might its recovery benefit the centennial retrospective on the Balfour Declaration? So this ought to be good. Why was all of this forgotten? How was all of this forgotten? Section 4. Britain as a repository of Zionist hopes. And let me say right off the bat, a lot of Brits, nationalist Brits, supported Zionism in the vain belief that the Jews of Britain would pack up and move to Palestine. That's why a lot of Brits supported Zionism. And as we know today, the so-called Jewish national home still only contains a very small fraction of Jews. The rest of the Jews are still right where they were when the Jewish state was created. New York, Miami, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, London, Paris, Frankfurt. And they have no intention of moving there. So this whole business about the Jews moving to their homeland is a total scam. They had no intention of leaving, but they had to make a show. They had to make sure a few little Jews, a few of their lesser brethren, actually would move there and make a pretense of nationhood. And that's what that stinking little country in the Middle East really is. It's just a fraud, a pretense of nationhood. The vast majority of Jews around the world will never move there and have no intention of moving there because it is, well, number one, not their national homeland. And they can't afford to leave their power bases in all the biggest cities of Anglo-Saxondom because they have to maintain their conniving parasitic relationship to our nations in order to stay in power. If they move to Palestine, as they falsely promised to do, they would lose all their power. I mean, good riddance. But this was the hope of the British nationalists and even the pro-Zionist Brits. They were hoping that the Jews would get the hell out. But unfortunately, the Jews are still in Britain, still conniving, etc., etc., Okay, section four, the title is Britain as a Repository of Zionist Hopes. In early 1917, the Zionists had one objective. There was no doubt that the best prospects for Zionism lay in a total Allied victory over the German-backed Ottomans and the placing of Palestine under an exclusively British protectorate. In other words, the Jews had to maneuver to make it appear that some other country is the bad guy or some other people 
is the bad guy, and the British drew the lot. Only in Britain did Zionism have sufficient support in governing circles to overcome deep-seated opposition from critics and doubters across, uh, doubters across Europe. But this guy Sokolow was working behind the scenes to change that in these other countries. And this includes among Jews who were opposed to Zionism. Because most of these Jews, like good parasites, were comfy cozy at home in the cities of Europe. But only Britain had the mix of strategic interests, military power, and political will to enforce its writ in Palestine. But only Britain would be able to wrest Palestine away from the Arabs and give it to the Jews, is what he's saying in plain language. But the Zionists faced two problems. The first, Britain had already promised to share Palestine with its wartime allies. Not only that, it had promised the Palestinians to give it back to them. Second, the Zionists didn't know it. Oh, come on. Come on. You're telling me the Zionists didn't know British intentions? Let me repeat these two statements here. First, the Britain had already promised to share Palestine with its wartime allies. Second, the Zionists did, you're telling me that the Zionists didn't know what treaties the British had with other countries. You're trying to tell me that, that folks, this is a blatant lie. A blatant lie. This is pure chutzpah. In the spring of 1916, Britain, France, and Russia had finalized a secret agreement to partition the Ottoman Empire upon its eventual defeat. You're telling me the Rothschilds didn't know about this? This was the Asia Minor Agreement, commonly known as the Sykes-Picot Accord after the British negotiator Sir Mark Sykes and his French counterpart, the diplomat Francois-Georges Picot. Okay, so you're telling us that the Rothschild didn't know about the Sykes-Picot agreement? Really? Is that what you're saying? The agreement divided the Levant and Mesopotamia between Britain and France along an east-west line in the sand from the Mediterranean to the western border of Persia. Russia was to receive a large swath of eastern Anatolia and the warm water port that the Tsar wanted so badly. You're telling me the Rothschilds weren't aware of the intentions of France, Britain, and Russia for getting involved in World War I? Is that what you're telling us? This, this is nauseatingly ludicrous, folks. But Palestine involved so many conflicting interests that it needed a special status. No, it didn't. Palestine was a country, if left to itself, would have continued as it did for the last 1,900 years. It had Arabs, well, actually 1,600 years because Islam, only 1,300 years because Islam only came around around 600 AD. So for the last 1,300 or so years, Palestine was a tripartite nation that included Christians, Muslims, and Jews. And those three groups lived in relative peace for that 1,300 years. 
if those are conflict, if those are conflicting interests, they were pretty stable, <laughs> right? So he he continues. According to the Sykes-Picot map, the northern Galilee would go to France. The ports at Haifa and Acre would be allotted to Britain. And the center of the country, including Jerusalem and Jaffa, was to come under an international administration, the form of which is to be decided upon through consultation with all of the allies, who also included Italy and Tsarist Russia. Okay, so here is the legitimization, folks. The, the victors upon victory would share the spoils. So this Jewish author is throwing the blame on Britain, France, Russia, Italy, etc. And saying, okay, this is, all of this is what gave the Jews, the Zionists, this great opportunity to snatch what they really wanted. Nobody wanted Palestine except the Jews. So now the Jews have to have, and this is the important point, folks, the Jews have to have a say in what happens to Palestine. If the Jews were, if this scenario were true and accurate, Palestine would have been divided between France and Britain. And the Zionists would have had no say in it. But the Zionists as I told you at the beginning of the show, it's the Zionists who precipitated World War I precisely because they could not wrest control of Palestine from the Ottoman Turks. And the, the Kaiser of Germany refused to intervene on the Jews, Jews' behalf also. So you're telling me that the Zionists didn't know the intentions of Germany and the Ottomans and the British and the Russians and the Italians, you're trying to tell us the Zionists didn't know? This is ridiculous, folks. It's utterly ridiculous. The Zionists have the world's greatest spy spy operation. Today it's called the Mossad. But in those days they had spies everywhere. And they had their own agents in charge of the negotiations at the Paris Peace Conference. Oh, we're so ignorant. Fortunately for the Zionists, he's trying to spin a tale that all of these coincidences just worked in the Jews' favor. Oh, fortunately for the Zionists, David Lloyd George, who became prime minister at the close of 1916, who just happened to become prime minister, not that he was a Zionist, another Zionist, David Lord George thought that the Sykes-Picot Agreement had given too large a place in Palestine to the French. Okay, and so fortunately for the Jews, this was David Lloyd George's opinion. Britain, after all, would do nearly all of the expected fighting and dying against Ottoman forces in the Sinai and Palestine. So Sykes was tasked with revising the Palestine portion of the Sykes-Picot Accord in such a way as to leave Britain with the lion's share. The French, represented by Picot, resisted, which you would expect, obviously, 
they don't want the terms of the agreement changed. Hey, man, we made a deal. 50-50, bro. But no, David Lloyd George just so happened in favor of the Zionists to start renegotiating the deal and freezing the French out. No, this just happened. The French, represented by Picot, resisted, insisting that their own claim to Palestine was at least equal to Britain's. It was at this moment that Sykes discovered Zionism. Oh, really? At this moment, Mr. Sykes just happened to discover Zionism. Quote, it seems at first a strange enough story. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. Sokolo later, later wrote, man, all of these coincidences just line up in favor of the Jews. Isn't this, isn't this interesting? Quote, a certain Sir Mark appears. He makes some inquiries and then expresses a wish to meet the Zionist leaders. Finally, a meeting actually takes place and discussions are entered upon. Quote, yeah, this is a strange story. Coincidence after coincidence after coincidence. It's just like uh, all of these American poli- so-called American politicians suddenly discovering that they're Jewish. as if they didn't know their entire lives, pretending to be not Jewish for the benefit of the public. So all of these coincidences just fall in place for the Jews. The meeting took place on the morning of February 7th, 1917, at a private home in London, right? Behind the scenes, not in public. Sykes there met the foremost leaders and sympathizers of the Zionist movement, Sokolow, Weizmann, Lord Walter Rothschild, James de Rothschild, and Herbert Samuel. Now we're talking heavy hitters. Do you think Mr. Sykes was impressed? Do you think Mr. Sykes was unknown to the Rothschilds and vice versa up to the point of this meeting? Are you buying this? From the record of that meeting, it is clear that Sykes held out the prospect that Britain might grant the Zionists some form of recognition on condition. No, Mr. Sykes was obeying orders. That's what really happened. The Rothschilds told uh, Mr. Sykes, uh, you shall change the terms of the agreement. But you will go out and pretend that you negotiated a deal or renegotiated the deal. France, he told them, was the serious difficulty. The French wanted all Syria and a great say in Palestine. Sykes proposed that the Zionists approach Picot in order to put the Jewish views before him and convince the French. So all of this is nonsense. Creating a cover story with the appearance of negotiations taking place as if non-Jewish People were the people making the decisions. No, this private meeting between Sykes, Sokolow, Weitzman, Rothschild, Rothschild, and Samuel, Sykes was the only non-Jew, as if he was going to persuade them? 
I don't think so, folks. This analysis reeks, reeks of chutzpah and, and Jewish subterfuge and camouflage. James de Rothschild finally replied that Sokolow was the proper person who could speak for the Russian Jews also. Sykes agreed to introduce Sokolow to Picot the following day. So, folks, the Jews don't have any power at all. They're so persecuted. Why was Sokolow the proper person? Harry Socker, a protege of Weitzman who was present at the London meeting, later characterized Sokolow's advantages, quote, Sokolow was the dip- diplomatist of the Zionist movement. The diplomatist of the school of the Kai d'Orsay, the French foreign ministry. Oh, yeah. No, no power influence whatsoever. His handsome appearance. I'll bet that's a lie, too. His air of fine breeding, also another lie. His distinguished manner, another lie. His gentle speech, another lie. There's no, no Jew fits this description. His calculated expression, now that's the truth. He practices expression in front of the mirror every day. His cautious action, well, yeah, I mean, if you're trying to pull a fast one, you got to be cautious. His well-cut clothes, yeah, I can buy that one because Jews are rich after all. His monocle, <laughs> that was part of his calculated expression, were faithful to a tradition which perhaps is not so highly honored as before the war. That is, posturing as a diplomat. Diplomats and ministers felt that he belonged to their club, spoke their language, and was one of themselves. Yeah, well, he, he played the part. He rehearsed for the role. He practiced their art. Yes, that's correct. And was entitled to their privileges. Yeah, he was groomed for this role. And also were all the other players. Sokolow made the impression of a statesman. Yeah, he was thrown into the role, just like other Jewish actors. Albeit one without a state. None of the Jews had a state. They just admitted they don't have a state. They were interlopers, parasites in whatever state they were in. And this went beyond his prodigious mastery of European languages. One admirer attributed his, in other words, he knew Yiddish. One admirer attributed his diplomatic finesse to his being, quote, a European through and through, no, 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 no. A Jew through and through, pretending to be a European. Internally as well as externally, in his Weltanschauung and manners. Weltanschauung is a German word which means worldview. No, his worldview was Jewish through and through. And he was an expert at pretending to have the interests of other countries in mind when everybody knew he was just nothing but a Jewish schemer and conniver and he had the big shot money of the Rothschilds behind him. Every European statesman knew this. That's what was really going on here, folks. This piece of Jewish swill is entirely unbelievable if you know the facts. Let's continue. It's just a few more minutes here today. 
He shined in the presence of Woodrow Wilson, Paul Payne-Levé, George Clemenceau, and Arthur James Balfour. Oh, he's such a glowing figure. No, he shined like Lucifer as an agent of the Rothschilds. That's what really happened. So, okay, now you can see that this piece of swill, this article, this essay, was written for the consumption of the typical Jew. You can see the pride bursting out of their chests at, at finding another Jew that they never worshipped before in their lives now being promoted in front of the rest of the Jewish world as some great hero. That's what this article is. It's just an article for Jewish pride to swell the pride of any Jew reading this article. Continuing, and while Sokolow represented no state, and neither did any other Jew, because their their allegiance is to their tribe first and any other country last, Europe's leaders saw in this little bent Jew, <laughs> that's a, quote, this little bent Jew, unquote, Still bearing Russian nationality. Now, he just said he doesn't have a nation. Now they're telling us he was a Russian. And they contradict each other themselves constantly. An authentic spokesman of the Jewish masses of Russia and Poland who could move them in the desired direction by the power of his words. No, 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 no. His words were recited from the script handed to him by the Rothschilds. He seemed to personify what Sacher called the great Jewish legend. And if he didn't exist, they would have to invent him. As a cosmopolitan, there you go, city dweller, leader of the great Jewry, to which Sykes and others attributed a vast subterranean influence. Well, here he's describing his vast subterranean influence. But only non-Jews attribute this vast subterranean influence to the Jews. It can't be real, despite the fact that he admits it in every sentence of this essay. Section 5. Succolo goes forth. And so Sokolow went forth, first to engage with Picot in London and then back and forth to Paris. So this this private person, I mean, where did he get the money to travel? Who provided him with the letters of introduction to all these heads of state in Europe's countries? Man, I, I wish I could have an interview, a calling card to meet with all of these people. I would like to have an interview with Donald Trump, with Queen Elizabeth, with all the heads of state of the states of Europe, Australia. I would love to have that. But none of us has that. Only Jews get such opportunities. Is that because of this fictitious coincidence that this author is trying to 
maintain ours is because of the vast subterranean influence that all of these billionaire and trillionaire Jews have. So you can see that any rank-and-file Jew would be beaming with pride at the connections that Mr. Sokolow has and the supposed good fortune that he has, but the Jews know better. So this article is written with two audiences in mind. Number one, the Jew beaming with pride at discovering another you know, Jewish conniver working behind the scenes. But yet, just in case a Christian, or maybe an Arab, or somebody, any non-Jew might read this article, he has to maintain, despite documenting all of the behind-the-scenes string-pulling going on here, that this, this idea that the Jews have a vast subterranean network of power, no, 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 that, that, can't, be, that can't be true. And you can see that the Jew is smiling. This Jewish author is smiling through his teeth while he's writing this gibberish. And this gives you an insight into the writing style of all of the newspapers, periodicals, journals, magazines, etc. of the world today because all of them have Jewish publishers and editors and writers, with a smattering of non-Jewish writers thrown in. And this is what we call Jewish spin. This is all we got. Jewish lies presented in a probable light so that we are are led to believe that all those Jews were kicked out of 100 Christian countries because uh, because we did nothing wrong. We can't explain it. This is the type of garbage that we are fed every day by the Jewish media. If this isn't nauseating, I don't know what is. All right, our people have to wake up. Our people have to realize that anything produced by a Jew always contains this type of cover-up, hiding facts, which are damning to the Jews. And you will never get the truth from any kind of Jewish article such as this, or any other Jewish article. Rare is the Jewish author who tells the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. They don't have it in them to speak such a way. So I was reading in between the lines for you based on my knowledge of the actual events and what the Jews are really up to and were up to in this historical period. No, World War I was created by the Rothschilds in order to snatch Palestine away from the Arabs. That's the bottom line, and I don't care what kind of spin these Jewish authors try to put it. That's, that's the fact, and they know it. But they must pretend to be innocent. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh, pass the ammunition. See you next time. 
Free people will never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Praise Yahweh and pass the ammunition. The Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James.